Hey, welcome everybody. Tom and I are here with Renee Salaby. We're starting a new um, Your Amigos Rising Star podcast series. We're going to take fellows and junior faculty and talk to them about some exciting data, perhaps around a meeting, an abstract or whatnot, and then also talk a little bit about career stuff. And we're going to talk today, um, Renee presented some data at the recent KCRS meeting applying the Emotion 151 clusters to a Javelin data set. So Renee, if you could just introduce yourself briefly and then maybe start into the background of, of what you did, and then we'll jump in with some questions. Sure. Hi, professors, Bowers and Rini. I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you so much. So my name is Rene Maria Salibi. I obtained my medical degree and Master of Science in Lebanon, and I'm currently a postdoc research fellow in G1 Oncology under the co-mentorship of Dr. Schwery and Dr. David Brown. Uh, so that's about me. And now let's talk about the science itself. So just for context, immune checkpoint inhibitors have really revolutionized the treatment landscape in RCC. And today's standard of care is made of IO-based combinations. It can be IO-VEGF, IO-IO. Unfortunately, we still have a significant percentage of patients who don't respond to the regimen they're given, or they respond for a while, then recur or they have to stop because of immune-related adverse events. And it would be really great if we could know all of that in advance to avoid this and give the appropriate drug to each patient. We, and, we agree. Renee, jump into the, the 151 signatures. I think the audience is familiar with the seven clusters that were defined from that study. So tell us how you applied that to the Javelin. Uh, and Brian, what were those seven signatures? They were angiogenic signatures and they were immune signatures, but they weren't cool immune signatures, were they? They well, I think of clusters four, five, and seven as immune. Four was T effector proliferative, five was proliferative. No, right. so you're right, they were not called immune signatures. Was that confusing on purpose? <laughs> yes, Tom, we intentionally tried to confuse people. We talked a lot about the names. I honestly don't remember exactly the discussions around why we named them specifically. Obviously, it had to do with the genes that were expressed. Okay, so we've got these seven signatures, two and two are angiogenic, three are thought to be immune driven. There are some are there some in your original work, Brian, were there some subtle differences in the immune signatures in terms of response? Because there were some proliferative genes and I got the impression that Bevatezo worked well in some and didn't work well in others. Is that fair? I think there were I, I would call it yeah, subtle differences in when we looked at clinical outcome. And again the you know, why seven and not 12 or not three was more having to do with how they biologically separated and not having too many or too little, this, this classifying method. So there, there's definitely going to be some overlap in these clusters. And why didn't you just make one immune signature and one angiogenic signature? Why did you feel the need to differentiate between them? Again, it was this negative matrix factorization, the statistical method used in the original data to, that separated them most cleanly, right? Because if you lump everything together, you lose that granularity, but you also can't have 36 clusters. That's probably not going to help. So it was sort of a, it was meant to be a balance between too many and too few as stated. Can we get back to Renee now? Tom, do you mind? We can. I just wanted some clarification. <laughs> I'm happy with that. Renee, now far away, far away. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. The seven clusters were like the most robust way to do it. And then uh, given that Agisabev was not FDA approved, we decided to look at these molecular clusters in another data set coming from the Javelin Renal 101 trial. So comparing Axiavidumab, that's now FDA approved, to Sinitinib. So we used a machine learning model to reproduce the methods that were used in Emotion 151. 
and we applied them in the Javelin dataset. So we trained our model first, and then we generated our results. And the patients. Renee, can I ask before you go into results? So when you say a machine learning model, so is, was it was it exactly the algorithm used from one five one, or was it? So was it, it, not? it was a random forest model that looks at the way uh, the seven signatures divided patients, and that learns the way that these patients were divided, and it reproduces it like with several iterations. We get to a point where it's the same, and it repro and it reproduces it in another data set. So the model in itself would be the same, but then the difference would be that in Javelin we had some different set of genes, and that's the difference—not the model itself, but the content of the genes that were used. Do you know how much overlap in genes? Uh, yes, there was more than eight percent overlap, and the okay. Like the problem was specifically in cluster seven where we didn't like we had the less overlap in this cluster. Sure, sure. So just for my benefit, so essentially you haven't used exactly the same genes as the genes in the original one five one data set. Is that correct? Yeah, the so the overlap was extremely important, but there were some genes that were still different. So and about eighty percent overlap, Tom. And so why? So just you know, from from just from my perspective, why not just use exactly the same genes and see where the where the dice fall? Uh, because that's what was sequenced previously, and that's what we were able to use. That's the problem. We had access to these genes exactly in the RNA seq. So it was about the the, the data that you had available to you. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, Renee, describe the, the breakdown of groups that you saw in Javelin as a first step. Okay, so we did obtain the seven groups. Groups one and two were enriched in androgenic uh, genes with slight differences. Group three was enriched in complement cascades and oxidation genes. Group four, five, six were more proliferative, with group four having uh, more T effector genes. So, that stood out. And group seven, we did have one patient per arm, but yeah, it was uh, the small RNA group. And we did see the same pattern of expression um, between emotion and javelin. So the, the percent of patients in each cluster overall and across IMDC groups was broadly similar to that which was seen in 151, is that correct? Exactly. We yeah. wanted to look at that to make sure that these are real transcriptional states that exist in the same proportions in different data sets and in IMDC groups. And that's what we found. We grossly had the same proportion of patients between the two trials. And what stood out was that the favorable risk group was enriched in androgenic groups one and two in both trials. So, I mean, to me, when I saw these data, that was reassuring. Again, I didn't, I don't think I realized at the time that not all the genes were overlapping, but it was reassuring that you know, in a large set of metastatic patients. And I assume these were these were primaries, right, from Javelin, mostly primaries that were analyzed? Yes, the yeah. vast majority was primary. Yeah, one five one. it was about 90%. Um, that, it, that at least proportions were the same. You, you would expect that, right, in large groups of RCC. Exactly, that's reassuring, as you said. Like, it's real. <laughs> and then talk about, again, what was different, though, was the response, basically okay. cl clinical outcome according to cluster. Yeah, so then we looked at the 
response and PFS to see if the molecular clusters determined response by treatment arm. And we know that in emotion, like groups four and uh, five, seven, like mostly did better under web. And then when we looked at that in Javelin, we saw that Axiovitimab really did better across the board and regardless of the clusters. And that may be due to the fact that it's a more potent regimen. It's a regimen that was FDA approved. So we'd, we'd expect that all patients would do better and that no subgroup would do better under sinitinib. And yeah, that's where our results differed between emotion and javelin. Um, Brian, you've been around the block a bit. Um, bevacizumab, <laughs> is it a good anti-angiogenic drug or is it actually a more active immune therapy drug? And the reason I ask that question is the Bevatezo regime seems to work really well in HCC um, mm-hmm. and, um, and it struggled a bit in clear cell renal cancer where VEGF is a really powerful driver. And of course, there's been a whole string of work. And I think Dave McDermott did some of this work looking at T-cell trafficking associated with bevacizumab. And so uh, is, it, I mean, is it a surprise that we're seeing axes of Valimab working across the board? Because essentially you're giving axes probably the same as sinistinib or maybe those, and you're giving the immune therapy, whereas bevatezo may be more specific for an immune regime. Exactly. Yeah. I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Renee. Go ahead. Yeah. Renee, you go. You go, Renee. Okay, thank you. So, yeah, despite bevacizumab being a monoclonal antibody that targets VEGF, like in the literature, we know that it potentiates the action of uh, the immune inhibitors. So, yes, even if it's an IO VEGF combination, we could consider that it's more that is affecting the immune part of the tumor more than the angiogenic part. And that's where we think that maybe clusters and signatures and predictive biomarkers might be specific to each drug and not to like, we can't say IOVEGF in general. We need to look at the biology of each drug, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess I'd say, Tom, I mean, Bev is obviously a more pure VEGF inhibitor, although Axie is pretty pure against the VEGF receptor. It's immunomodulatory effects. I think the relative immunomodulatory effects of an antibody versus a TKI, I don't, I honestly don't think we have any idea. You know, I think that's a lot of hand waving. I'm not sure of really great data to differentiate that. And I, you know, these regimens are, are similar, but they're not similar. You know what I mean? So they're obviously somewhat similar mechanistically, but certainly not identical. And so that may account for some of the differences. You know, I think what surprised me was just, you know, that the proportion um, some of the proportions, you know, so in the Javelin set that Renee presented, I mean, there was almost a twofold increase in response rate in the angiogenic clusters compared to sunitinib. I wouldn't, wouldn't have expected that. I mean, whether it's one set of angiogenesis genes or another, I'm, I'm guessing they're not that different, right? I mean, they're 80% the same and, and I would, wouldn't think one necessarily performs better, even if you just look at sunitinib. Yeah. About, if, about a, if, if that were the case, you'd expect the Goodrich patients to do a whole load better, but they did do better, the Goodrich patients, from a response perspective with VEGF TKI iotherapy. So that's kind of, I, I guess this is, this is bringing us back to this, this biology issue around good, intermediate and poorest patients, which is something I haven't really got my head around properly yet. The way I'm looking this, at this at the moment from the Cosmic 313 data is that 
in those patients with porous disease, ipinevo did about the same as cabo ipinevo. And they seem to be driven almost exclusively or certainly immune therapy seemed particularly active in that group where the good risk group, you know, you might even say just sunisinib alone is as good as anything else that we've seen. How does that fit in with the biology of what you folks are doing, Rene, Brian? Because you've both been doing this work. And, and does, it, does it help this discussion? I guess I would say, right, the IMDC risk groups are, are mixes of biology. And in any one trial, that favorable risk might be more or less angiogenic. You know, the poor risk, which is also very heterogeneous, might be more or less inflammatory. So I think these clusters are starting to define the biology, but by no means making it crystal clear, like we understand it perfectly and know how to apply therapy. Rene, I've got a question for you, if I may. Yes, of course. The alternative explanation to -hmm. these findings is that the work that Brian and Bob did in 151 was exploratory. You've attempted to validate it and it hasn't shown that difference. The validation process has just failed. And the reality is these subgroups don't define response and resistance. We went looking for it in a phase, in an exploratory part of a randomized trial, and now we've tried to validate it, and that's failed. How how would you interpret that? Well, I think, first of all, like more validation is needed. Just one data set is not enough like to decide that. But yeah, we can say that they did not really predict response here. But we need more work to understand how they could help predict response, how they could help understand the biology. And and I think that maybe trying to combine these clusters with other models to have like biomarkers that are more complex and that target every regimen maybe. And Tom, I'd, I'd actually say, I mean, if you look at the forest plots, the performance of the combination arm in clusters 4.5 or 4.5.7 is pretty similar. The hazard ratios are 0.5 and 0.6. It's really that angiogenic group, that cluster 1 and 2, that's very different between these exactly. groups. And that I, I just don't understand it. I don't know. So it's really not that they don't necessarily predict response to IOTKI. It's that the angiogenic group, you know, didn't do did differently between the studies the did, cluster one did perform similarly in both arms in both in both arms of the study did, was there at least some consistency in the control arm in terms of how sunitinib performed no there there wasn't i mean if you look and i'm looking at response rates so in the javelin cluster one and two the, the cumulative response rates like 30 ish percent where it was probably 45 percent in a tezabev so that's what I mean. That's the biggest difference in these data sets is that for some reason, performance of sunitinib in one angiogen, you know, in cluster one and two in one study was different than cluster one and two in another study. And I don't, I don't know that we have an explanation for that. Um, and Rene, where do you go next with this? What do you, um, what do you do with this? I'm like, I, I guess that this is the first step of a really interesting piece of work. What, what have you got planned? So right now, maybe we're going to do more validation, try to understand why it was not validated, what is lacking. And uh, like, I won't pretend, honestly, to be able to 
create new sets of uh, biomarkers, but we're trying to look at it at an optimal way to see if we can predict response or maybe the answer that we don't want to hear is that maybe we won't find like in our lifetime biomarkers that predict response and that's what we're looking at that's very depressing Renee. i'm very depressed we're going to i'm 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 very confident Um, i've got a question for you if i may sure Um, you've got a perspective randomized trial looking at these clusters how much does the data you've seen uh that Rene showed today worry you about that I, I don't think it worries me. I mean, again, it's. I think the biggest difference here is performance of sunitinib in the angiogenic clusters, and we're Can we not describe your that. study quickly before we kick. Yeah, it's basically taking frontline metastatic patients, getting metastatic tissue to profile, which is different than these data sets, determining their cluster for individual patients, which is also quite challenging, and then the angiogenic clusters will get IOTKI, and the the four or five, the immune clusters, so to speak, will get ipinevo. And so it's really a, it's frankly really a platform to say, can we do it? We're looking just at response rate, you know, imperfect, but reasonable endpoint and say, can we do this? Can we set this up? I don't think it's going to be the start and the finish, you know, of the story, but just the beginning. And if we can, if we can get through the feasibility, then we can start to look at, you know, different gene sets, different mechanisms. What do we do with cluster three and six, which are not included in our study, et cetera. So it's, you know, it's an attempt to, really prospectively study this because at the end of the day both of these are retrospective data sets right so I, I think there's a lot of differences and it's hard to necessarily compare them i'd love to see the ipinevo data across these um cohorts i'd also love to see a pd1 inhibitor rather yep. than the two pdl1 i i Agreed. my one of my concerns is we are really doing most of the biology that we've seen has been around pdl1 but yeah. most of the drugs we use is PD one, and it would I think the biomarkers of PD one and PDL one are going to be distinct, and I think true immune biomarkers will be best suited from either the control arm of Invigor one five zero that had a Tezo alone, or the Epinevo data set, um, which is obviously hasn't got a VEGFTKI. Because as soon as you stick the VEGFTKI in, you know if you're looking for an angiogenic signature. You're not going to be able to find that because, strictly speaking, everyone's got that in in the backbone. So I'm, um, you know, I think this is, I think it's cool, but but I think we need to. Do, I think there's a lot more work to do here. Yeah, I I agree with you. So maybe maybe we can close, Renee. I wanted to ask you sort of one career question. I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there, and you know, in your position, who'd love to get access to data like this. You know, produce these results, get be able to do a presentation mm-hmm. at major meetings. How did you? How did this come about? You know, what did you do to get access and, and maybe talk us through that a little bit? Yep. So honestly, I'm, I'm very lucky to be like in a great institution at Dana-Farber and with two great co-mentors, Dr. Schwery and Dr. Braun. So they're the ones who've been pushing for these projects to advance the field and everything. And then like on the field, we're doing the work all together, but having access to this data, having access to resources, it's all thanks to them. So good mentorship. Tom, anything else from you? Um, no, we're doing a series of these rising star um, programs. And if you're listening to this and you know someone who is a rising star who you think should or would like to appear with us, just you know, send us a, a message on uh, on um, uh, on Twitter or, or email us. And we'd be really keen to to try and 
you know, to try and generate some some energy around around this program, I think it's potentially really important. So uh, Brian and I are one hundred percent behind it. And Renee, thank you for being the first of uh, of what we hope is going to be a series of of five or six of these. I think it's fantastic work that you've done. I think it's really good to to have findings which aren't necessarily one hundred percent consistent with what we've seen before. I am really keen that we don't oversimplify biomarker discovery in kidney cancer i think we've tried to do that before make complex problems simple and then we head off in the in in the wrong direction and i think what you've highlighted with your work is that actually the drugs are different and the signatures are hard to reproduce they can be reproduced and i think it's really really important work Thank you so much. That's a great summary of exactly what you did. And thank you very much for having me and for all of your kind words. Thanks, Renee. Take care. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Yes. Right. Thanks, Renee. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>